I recently came out of retirement and I jumped back into the old men's basketball league in Fike at noon. I'm back. Just as terrible as ever. And uh, I played last week and basketball is uh, so fun for me. It's so good for my health. It's so bad for my pride. It, or good for my pride. I don't know how you want to look at that. But it's like I'm not a great basketball player. I love playing. And I've worked at it over the years. And I've played growing up. And, um, and I, I just enjoy being out there. But I find myself constantly coming up with excuses of why I'm not good as I'm playing. Do y'all do this with a sport where I'm like, like I missed the shot and I'm like, oh, my toes are really hurting today. And you just like, you think, or maybe even you say the craziest things, like I'm just so tired I didn't sleep last night or I haven't had lunch yet. And that's why I'm so winded. Uh, that makes no sense at all. Um, or my, my eighth grade coach was terrible. That's why I don't know. I, and so like we, we find like someone to blame. And it makes me think of that office episode where Michael Scott basically makes the whole office play a basketball game during their lunch break. Y'all remember this episode? It's early on. It may be the first season. And it's so good because Michael Scott thinks he's great at basketball. Like he thinks he is so legit. And he, he has this like, I don't know, off-brand uniform. And he's got the, the wristbands, but like up around his, his uh, muscles. And he and Dwight are like chanting defense as they're playing defense. Do you remember this? He shoots a free throw. And he warms up for like 25 seconds and he keeps like spinning the ball, even sits it on the ground, picks it back up, shoots it, misses the backboard altogether. There's one shot, though, this scene has been in my mind for years where he basically chunks it from over half court. Like it's more than half court. He hits the back wall of the warehouse and he screams, come on. What is wrong with me today? I usually hit those. You remember that moment? I think about that line all the time. (laughs) That like moment where it's not just in basketball. You think about the moments in life where you just sort of like want to proclaim that you usually hit those and you want people to know you usually get it right. It's a lie. Like it's a lie for Michael Scott. He doesn't usually hit the shots past half court on his own spare time. It's just an excuse, right? I think about that all the time because I think of the many different areas in our lives where we want to blame others for the things that we get wrong or we want to make excuses for the things that we're, we're not doing well in. And we sort of like live our lives that way. We're seeking, I think, so many times and day to day in our lives, we're seeking to justify our existences by so many different things. And when we don't feel like we're measuring up to our standards, we're not measuring up to the ways that we want to justify ourselves, then we want to then make excuses or claim things like, I usually get this right, when all along we, it may not necessarily be true. Or we want to blame others. It's so hard for us to own up to our screw-ups. It's so hard for us to acknowledge where we fall short. And so we really try hard to not acknowledge it. Or... We try so hard to even build our lives to where we don't fail at all. We build our schedules to where we don't have to think about the areas where we don't fail at all. Uh, I think so much about you guys and, and the busyness uh, that you, you have. And you guys are very busy. But is one of the reasons that you're busy and you're really, really busy and you remind people every day how busy you are. How are you? Busy. Well, I'm busier. I'm busiest. We have these conversations all day long. Part of the reason I think behind our busyness is that we want to prove that we are, we are important. 
that we are busy because I'm so important. I'm doing something that really matters. I think we even build our schedules to justify our existence. Or maybe the why are you in the relationship that you're in? Or why do you have you built the friend group and really tried to protect this particular friend group that you're in? Maybe you could be justifying yourself by your relationship status or your particular group of friends. Or um, I think another area is even in your spiritual life. Can we justify ourselves by our spiritual lives? I think we can. You can bounce around to 25 different ministries or you can always sort of build your life around really spiritual things. But that may be another way we're actually using good things to justify ourselves in the sight of others or in the sight of God. There's so many other ways that we sort of can seek to justify our existences. We do it with our work. We do it with our knowledge. We do it with our social media presence or our lack of social media presence. Uh, We justify ourselves with our relationships, our body image, our reputation, and so much more. All right, here's why I bring this up. Because in this part of the letter to Philemon, we find Paul standing in the gap for someone who simply can't justify themselves. They They can't make excuses anymore. They can't make it up. They can't blame anybody but themselves, and that's Onesimus. He owes a debt to Philemon. And frankly, it's a debt that he can't pay back on his own. He's out of excuses. But in Paul, God provides Onesimus a substitute. So what about for us? I think for us, we need to see that we have a substitute even greater than Paul for our lives to pay back a debt that we can never pay back on our own. And here's the reason this matters. This connects because If we begin to really believe and lean in to the substitute that God has provided for us to pay our debt, it begins to free us up from all of these things that we seek to justify ourselves with. Okay, I'm going to come back to that at the end, but hang with me. We have two points I want to work through that's on your outline tonight. First point is the debt owed, and the second is the debt paid. First, the debt owed. So it's based on verse 18. That's where we get this idea that Onesimus, this former... Slave who ran away from his master Philemon stole something from Philemon. It seems to be inferred in this verse, most likely money to survive on his own for a while. Now Onesimus is returning back to his former master with a debt to pay. So he's left with two options. Two options to do with this debt. Number one is pay it back, but he's probably broke now, which is part of why he's coming back. Or option number two, work it off, right? put himself in um, as a bond servant again and maybe try to work it off. Those are basically his two options. But Paul suggests this third way, this third option, that Philemon actually forgive Onesimus of his debt. Now, I don't love this third option, especially for people who owe me something. I don't, I, don't like, I don't like when people owe, owe me something, and I've dealt with this before in business, where people owed me money and it infuriated me and they wouldn't pay and they wouldn't settle their bills. I, I want what's due to me. I want them to make me pay. And we do this in relationships too. It's not even just money, right? If someone has wronged me, I may say, don't worry about it, but I'm going to bring it up when it's convenient. You know anybody that does that? They say they've forgiven you, but they kind of keep reminding you of the thing that they've forgiven you for over and over again. That's not, that's not forgiveness. That's holding it over. That's bitterness. That's control. Maybe you're doing that with someone right now, reminding them regularly of the debt that they owe you. 
I really think how we respond to others who have wronged us has everything to do with how we understand how God has responded to us as we have wronged him. I think that God has partly preserved this little book. This is, you know, one of my favorite books in the Bible, partly because it makes us consider the debt that we owe to God. And we do owe him. Debt is really just another way that we can talk about sin. The Bible's clear teaching from Genesis to Revelation is that all men are born into sin. We are broke by our brokenness and we are in debt to God. It's not just that we do sinful things, it's that we are sinners. We don't love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We fall short of these things day by day, hour by hour, maybe minute by minute. A couple of verses that makes this point. Psalm 51, 5 is the one where David confesses, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born into this existence with sin. Isaiah 53, 6 confesses that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And then Romans 3, 23, of course, says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our sin has affected every part of our lives. Nothing remains unaffected by sin. It's what theologians often call total depravity. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with that phrase, and I don't know what it sounds like to you, but I want to explain what it means. Total depravity doesn't mean that everything is as bad as it possibly could be. Thank God. But it does mean that every part of our lives has been affected by the fall, by sin. Our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our wills, our actions, our behaviors, our words, our relationships, our motives, everything has been affected by sin. Now to illustrate it, I'm going to tell you about a time last summer where I attempted to paint a chandelier in our house. Um, Here's what happened. Here's how I remember it. There's this little chandelier. We moved into a house last summer uh, in Clemson, and and we bought this house. And so we're doing little projects here and there, trying to find ways to do some of the things that we want to do, but in a cheap way, right? So there's the chandelier in the dining room. It's one of these like old, I don't know how to describe it, but it was really ugly. And so instead of replacing a chandelier with a new fixture, I just thought, you know, some black spray paint, it's going to look really pretty. Uh, We can just kind of get this thing done for a couple bucks. And so I set it up. I'm going to do it myself. And I I had a really good plan. So there's the dining room table. I cover the dining room table with newspaper because I'm not a fool. And I (laughs) then I put this giant box barricade around the chandelier. So far, so good. Now, I could have taken the chandelier down. That's what a lot of people would suggest. I don't want to fool with all that. Breakers and such, that scares me. So here we go. I've got a barrier. Some of you see where this is going. You're ahead of me. I got one of those wardrobe boxes, you know, big wardrobe boxes. I stacked that up. And so it's going to the ceiling. And basically, there's only this one little opening right here. And that's enough for me to get my hand in. Spray paint it. I spun it. Spray paint it a couple times. Done. It's beautiful. Kind of let the paint settle for a minute. Uh, I began to take everything down. Take down the big box. Take down the paper off of the table. And I'm really proud of it. And I bring Kelly in. And I'm like, look at this chandelier. What do you think? She's like, it looks great. What? What is this? <laughs> and she starts to notice little black specks that, that were on the buffet behind the table. 
Not the table. I had the table covered. But the buffet, I did not have covered. And there were little black specks that kind of worked their way. And as we started looking at those specks, we started realizing they're also on the bookshelf over here. And on the tops of, like, all the books that we had gotten out. (laughs) And... uh, and we were moving in still in this process, so we had kind of stuff everywhere, and, and all that stuff had black paint on it now, and some of it was good stuff. And it, it just sort of worked its way out into that entire area of the house. Like, nothing remained unaffected by my black spray paint. I don't exactly what, remember what happened next. I think I blacked out. Kelly was crying. It was not good. <laughs> The, the black spray paint splattered across that area of our house is a picture, I believe, of the sin that has darkened the many different areas of our lives. Follow me on this. We, like Onesimus, stand indebted to a holy God who we owe our very lives to, but we have not loved him well. There is spray paint over every area of our lives. There's not one area of my life that's, that remains unaffected by sin. My words, my actions, my motives, everything. We can never pay back the debt. We can never wash ourselves enough. So options one and two are not open to us. We can never pay back the debt we owe because of our own sin. And option number two is we can never work it off. You can't make up enough good to cover the bad in our hearts. And so what is the hope for Onesimus? If he can't pay back this debt on his own, and really what's the hope for us if we can't either? The hope is that someone has to pay it for us. That's what makes Paul's offer so amazing in this text. He's offering himself as a payment for Onesimus's debt. Did you hear it? This is 17 and 18. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Charge that to me. He says, I write this with my own hand. I will repay it. There was recently a sweet little news story, local news story, about a girl at our daughter's elementary school, Clemson Elementary where this girl, I think she was a seven-year-old. I don't know what grade she's in. She must be between our two daughters. And, but she helped raise money uh, to settle the debt of some of the families in the school with their lunchroom accounts. And this is just a sweet thing that she did. She wanted to raise $250. That was her goal, that she could give to the school to basically cancel the debt. So some families who couldn't afford to take care of their kids' lunches or maybe the kids came to school without a lunch and the school provided a lunch and there was a little bit of a debt accumulated She wanted to take care of that. So she set out to raise $250. She ended up raising $750, and that went to help a lot of different families in the schools. Just such a sweet story, and um, that's exactly what Paul's offering to do here, right? He's offering to write a check. When he says to Philemon, charge it to my account, he's saying, I will take Onesimus' debt on myself, I will cover his debits with my credits. And so he even, I love the picture that he writes here. He even grabs the pen from probably Timothy is who he was dictating this to. He grabs the pen and he signs his name to it. He says, I'm writing this with my own hand. In other words, he's saying, here's my signature. Consider it done. Consider it finished. It's settled. 
One commentator said on this passage that Paul, who knew no debt, took on the debt for Onesimus so that in Paul, Onesimus might become restored to Philemon. Now, you may be catching the parallels here. Martin Luther said that in these verses, Paul is playing the part of Christ in this little play. I love the picture of that. Paul is playing the part of Christ in this little play. And forgiving Onesimus' debts out of his own account, Paul is playing the role of Jesus, who forgives your debts and mine out of his own account. If you are someone who agrees that there has been spray-painted sin across the areas of your lives, and you see that you have accumulated a debt before God, I want you to see that you have a willing and able substitute to stand in for you who takes the full weight of your debt on himself, for God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means that in him we might have a right standing with God. Two weeks ago, we took the girls to see a little play um, at the Clemson Little Theater of The Line, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Great little production put on by local high schoolers and middle schoolers. Um, it was great. They did a good job. C.S. Lewis's depiction of Aslan is always really moving. Uh, you've got <clears throat> the, uh, the substitutionary death, and you've got this resurrection scene. Of course, Aslan is playing the part of Christ in the story. And it was way more intense than I expected for what it's worth. If you ever go see this particular production, way more intense than I thought it was going to be. Uh, especially the, the killing scene. The girls both crawled into our laps very quickly. The lights turned red and everything's like they're chanting. Anyway, great. They did a great job. There's, there's one thing about Lewis's depiction that's always sort of bothered me a little bit. And I, now I'm, no, I'm not saying I'm smarter than C.S. Lewis. Let me just be on record. <laughs> And I'm not criticizing C.S. Lewis um, because his story is an allegory. Of course, the Chronicles of Narnia are an allegory. They're not a theological work. But the part that's always sort of bothered me and I've never quite been able to reconcile is the part about the debt that Edmund owed. The debt that Edmund owed, you know, he he took the Turkish delight from the white witch and, and now he's sort of with her. He's like a servant to her. He's indebted to her. And Aslan comes and he makes the, a deal. If I'm ruining Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe for you, I'm sorry. It's been out for a minute. Um, <laughs> that's on you. So Aslan steps in and he, he makes this deal with a white witch that he would give himself up so that Edmund could be set free. It's super moving, but it's always bothered me just a little bit as far as the parallels go of Jesus. Again, it's allegory, but because the reality of our debt... It's not that we're enslaved to the evil one or that Jesus has to make a deal with the devil to let us go free. It's that we are enslaved by our own sins. We are stacked with an insurmountable debt against our holy God because of our failures. And the only way that we can be set free from that bondage is if our debts are paid off from the outside in. By someone who has the righteous resources to pay our debt in full, to restore our relationship with God. And that's where Jesus takes center stage, where in Jesus' substitutionary death, he not only takes on our sins on himself, but he restores us in a right relationship with God because he has a right relationship with God. He has no debt, so he can take on our debt. 
And then he offers us his right standing. This is what theologians call double imputation. It's a really important phrase and a term that I want to think about with you. Jesus had no record. There was no black paint spread across his life, no record of death. And so our sin is imputed to Christ on the cross. It's given to him. And his righteous standing is imputed to you if you trust in him. It's a double imputation. It's a double exchange that takes place. That's why this phrase justification, it's a theological term, is really important. Because justification is saying something. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons our sins. And he accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now, I know that's really technical, but it's saying something so important It's saying that justification is a double exchange. There's two sides. If you are in Christ, that means your sin has been placed on Jesus and dealt with on the cross Your debt has been paid, and it means that his righteousness is given to you. That you are good before God. And all of this is received by faith alone, trusting that it's true. That's the two sides of justification, that you are justified in the sight of God. Because he took your debt and you take his righteousness. It's a pretty good deal for us if we would receive it in faith. Now, listen to those two sides, and I want you to see that both of those are in this text. Listen, Paul says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. God the Son looks at the Father and he says, if he has wronged you at all, if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. And then the other side, receive him as you would receive me, Paul says. Jesus looks at God the Father and he says, receive her, receive him. As you would receive me, and he does. That's the beauty of the gospel. Listen, justification by faith alone means that God sees you as he sees his very own righteous son, Jesus. And he treats you justified. You've heard it said justification means just as if I never sinned. This is a beautiful message of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My question for you is, do you believe it? Do you believe that God sees you just as if you had never sinned? He sees you in Christ. That he receives you as a son or daughter of God. I want to close with a few important implications, I think, of what justification leads to in our lives. A few, uh, maybe four things here. This is for those of you who are in Christ, those of you who are Christians. I want you to know that these are the realities that are are held up for you to believe in. And if you're not a Christian, I know many of you in the room are working through what you believe or you know that you don't believe in this. I I want you to hear this as an invitation of what's offered to you in the gospel. Number one, justification by faith alone means that you actually have freedom to fail. It means you have freedom to fail. You may not be free to fail a nursing exam. Nursing students in the room, right? You're donezo. But the kingdom of God is not like nursing school, thank God. 
if you are justified in the sight of God through the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by faith alone, that means that nothing actually takes away your good standing before God. Your standing with God is absolutely secure because it is bought with the blood of Christ. And you can know that even if you fail or when you fail, you are loved, you are forgiven, and there is grace for you. I've shared the story before of Robert Robinson who became a Christian in the mid-1700s. He lived a really wild life before he became a Christian. He was converted through the preaching of George Whitfield, of all people, and he becomes this pastor and a hymn writer. He writes a lot of famous hymns. And as he got older, he began to wreck his life again. He returned to a lot of the patterns that he had before he met Christ. And he felt like he had made such a mess of his life that God was done with him. You ever felt that way? That God is just done with you? That he had fallen too far. And the story goes that Robinson found himself riding in a stagecoach with this woman who was a complete stranger. And she was reading through a hymn book. And she had the page open to a hymn called Come Thou Fount. And she was reading through this hymn and talking about it. The streams of mercy. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. And Robinson looks up at her and he says, Madam, I am the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings that I had back then. You hear what he's saying? He said, I wrote those words and I'm not even sure I believe it anymore. I would give a thousand worlds to go back to where I was back then. And she said to him, the story goes, sir, the streams of mercy are ever flowing. It's a beautiful line. The streams of mercy are ever flowing. Justification by faith means that God sees you and treats you just as if you had never sinned. And so when I say that you are free to fail, that doesn't mean just then go and do whatever you want. A lot of people take that idea that like if, if you really believe in justification, then you're just going to go and do whatever you want to do. If you understand how loved you are by God, if you understand what a sacrifice it was for Jesus to die for you, would it make you want to just go do whatever you want that dishonors him? Of course not. But it means that when you fail, you know that you have an advocate before God in Jesus Christ and you have forgiveness and it is real and it is true. And so the second thing that comes out of this that justification means for you, the second implication is justification by faith alone means that you now have freedom to admit failure. So you have freedom to fail, but you also have freedom to admit failure. It means you can finally say those three little words that are so hard to say. I was wrong. You could also add three more. And I'm sorry. I was wrong. How hard is that for us to say? It's so hard for us to say. It's hard for you to say that to a friend that you're working on a project with and you just got a calculation wrong. It's hard for you to say in a relationship where you just blew up and you shouldn't have. It's hard for you. It's hard for me to admit that we are wrong. But if we believe in justification, we now have freedom to admit it because it, it, is, it assumes that we are wrong. You don't have justification actually by faith without being wrong. We are free to ask for forgiveness. We don't have to make excuses and shift the blame anymore. 
But the scriptures expose our hearts and show us where we are wrong. And we don't have to make excuses. In in fact, it, it shows us that we can't. But we don't have to shift our blame either because our blame has been shifted to Jesus on the cross. And he's taken on the full weight of our blame on himself. And now we can turn to God in honest confession and we can turn to our neighbor who we've hurt and genuinely ask for forgiveness. And that leads to the third implication when you may find yourself on the other side of that admission. The third thing is justification by faith alone means that you are now free to forgive others. You don't have to hold others' failures over their head or make them continually pay for what they did wrong. In fact, your justification by faith means that you don't get to. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he had something to say about forgiveness, didn't he? His prayer indicates that our forgiveness of others is directly related to God's forgiveness of us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness is not easy. It is very costly. The cross shows us that. But we can move toward forgiveness, true forgiveness, if we can see how Jesus has moved toward us, forgiven our great debt, even at a cost to himself. When Jesus signed the debt papers with his own blood and he stamped on our record, it is finished as if, you know, Paul writes with his hand, consider it done. Jesus writes with his own blood over our lives, consider it done. We know that forgiveness came at a cost. How much more then should we be willing to forgive others, even when it's difficult and costly? And finally, the last thing is this justification by faith alone means that we don't have to work so hard to build our image anymore. I want you to hear me carefully on this. Justification is actually the thing that you have to begin leaning into to find rest in college. It's the thing that empowers you to say no to good things. Because you don't have to live your life justifying your existence anymore. Your standing before God is not based on your GPA. Your standing in the kingdom of God is not based on your resume. You are free to finally try, try to find your deepest identity and your true identity above anything else as a child of God. Not as the person who has everything together. Not as the person who's the busiest or the happiest, the best social media presence, the most friends, the best job, whatever we can name. The son of God looks at his father and he looks at you and he says, receive him as you would receive me. That is how loved you are by God the father. Practically, this really does mean that you don't have to clamor so hard to be involved in every group on campus. You don't have to. In fact, you can say no to some really great opportunities because you can't justify your existence by your involvement. It'll crush you in the end. And I've seen it do that here over and over again. It also means that we don't have to freak out when a boy or girl actually says those words I'm just not that interested. Your justification isn't based on what some boy thinks about you or how some girl responds to your request for a date. 
Your identity is not in your relationship status. You have an identity so much deeper than that in your relationship with Christ. It frees you up. It means that you are not your greatest success. And you are not your greatest failure. You are not the sum total of your physical appearance, your athletic ability, your academic achievements, and your diverse group of friendships. Justification by faith alone means that you don't have to do all those things to be successful or to be loved or to have a meaningful life. It also doesn't mean that you don't do those things and you now just become lazy or check out. No, it just means that you don't have to to measure up. You are free. And more than that, you are free to serve God in all of those areas that we just named. Justification by faith alone doesn't mean that we just go and do whatever we want. It actually means with whatever we do, we serve him with it. It changes our motivation. It changes our hearts to actually serve others instead of take from others. It changes our hearts to encourage others instead of control others. It changes our hearts to be involved, not to build a resume, but to build the kingdom. It changes everything about why we do the things that we do. Does that feel like freedom to you? I hope it does. I hope it feels like tremendous freedom. Because if you are in Christ, your identity above anything else is that you are in Christ. And He is in you. Oh, to grace how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace now like a fetter bind my wondering heart to thee. May this be our prayer tonight and your invitation to look to Jesus. Would you pray with me?